Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Folks, we are waiting for some decisions in the Brian Koberger case, some court decisions. And on the screen, we have Judge John Judge right there. And he made some important decisions yesterday. Uh, as we know, Brian Koberger, the alleged killer of four students at the University of Idaho, had his motion to dismiss the charges against him denied by Judge Judge. Koberger, who's 28 years old, old, stepped into court for the second time to discuss his motions to dismiss the indictment in his upcoming trial, claiming the grand jury was given improper instructions. The alleged quadruple murder was requested requesting his case be sent back to the preliminary hearing. However, the Washington students' pleas were denied. The judge told his defense team they would have to take the issues up with the Idaho Supreme Court uh, for the change as he was bound to the existing law. Law sets precedent. So if they wanted to take this to the Idaho Supreme Court, they could certainly do that. Uh, According to the New York Post, the judge was quoted as saying, You know, I am constrained by existing law. I can just change it. I can't just change it, Judge John Judge told Kohlberger's defense attorneys. This is an issue you would have to bring up with a higher court, the Idaho Supreme Court. Uh, I appreciate the argument, appreciate the journey back to history, but um, he's looking forward to getting this settled. Um, In July, Kohlberger's attorneys claimed that or requested that the indictment should be thrown out because they allege that prosecutors failed to give a grand jury panel proper instructions when explaining the burden of proof before they voted to indict him. His defense attorneys, Latah County Judge John Judge, uh, they asked him to toss it out due to faulty instructions, and instead he scheduled a preliminary hearing, which would give Koberger's lawyers a chance to question state witnesses and potentially expose information in the defendant's favor. Uh, in addition, Koberg was asked to reveal his alibi, which his attorneys declined to do. His lawyers claim he was on a late night solo drive the night of the murders. Um, Mr. Koberger has long had a habit of going for drives alone, according to his attorneys. Uh, that's, uh, his, his, uh, attorney Taylor. Uh, He did so on the night of November 12th and into November 13th, which, of course, was the morning of the four murders. However, Taylor added that Koberger is not claiming to be at a specific location at a specific time. The court denied his motion, saying the defense team had a jarring theory and that the grand jury maintained the correct standard of proof is probable cause. Uh, In addition, Koberger is adamant that cameras must be kept out of the courtroom, arguing that it violated the judge's orders and threatened his right to a fair trial. So we're going to get into this, all of this stuff, and and what does this mean? Um, Clearly, um, the judge wants to be quite lenient, but go by the law, of course, in this case, because we all know that this is a death penalty case. And because of that those facts, um, the the possibility that at the end of this trial, if there is a guilty verdict, there's almost a 95 to 100% chance of an appeal, uh, especially since the method of uh, issuing the death penalty in Idaho is a firing squad. Um, I can almost guarantee there will be an appeal upon if there is, in fact, a guilty verdict. So a lot of decisions made here, and we're going to go over uh, what the court said. We're going to see what um, uh, Law and Crime said. We're going to see what um, Ashley Banfield said about this. Many people in the media, of course, are cheering on uh, or rooting for having cameras in the courtroom. And that's a huge decision also. So, folks, hang on to your hat. Strap yourself into your chair. You're about to enter Police Off the Cuff, real crime story. So getting it all off the cuff, joining Police Off the Cuff, and here we go. 
There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and Grant's microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. I'm going to go to Law and Crime with Anjanette Levy, who gives the take on the request for the dismissal of the grand jury indictment. ...have filed two motions asking Judge John Judge to either dismiss the indictment against him or to send the case back to a lower court for a preliminary hearing. In a preliminary hearing, a prosecutor calls witnesses, think detectives or crime lab analysts or even eyewitnesses, to show a judge there's probable cause that a defendant committed a crime. Defense attorneys like preliminary hearings because they get to cross-examine witnesses before trial. And sometimes they learn information that can help the defense. That didn't happen in this case. Instead, the Lataw County prosecutor chose to present the case to a grand jury, which is done behind closed doors without Koberger or his lawyer present. I knew from the get-go that this was almost assuredly going to be a case that was brought before the grand jury. Edwina Elcox is a criminal defense attorney in Idaho who's following Koberger's case. She explained why it wasn't surprising that a grand jury was impaneled. You have a large amount of media speculation and public speculation about the case. You have uh, the victims' uh, families. Um, that and also the other roommates that were there and other potential witnesses in the case. And so I think to protect the integrity of the proceeding, uh, the grand jury was almost assuredly the route the prosecution was going to take. Now, absolutely, do I understand why the defense would have preferred preliminary hearing route, right? You get a shot, you get the first shot at the state's witnesses and the evidence, um, and the state doesn't get to solely control that narrative. But I do not think that it is surprising at all that the prosecution elected to you utilize the grand jury. Hoberger claims the grand jury was biased and that the grand jury heard inadmissible evidence. Koberger also claims the indictment should be dismissed or he should get a preliminary hearing because of prosecutorial misconduct. I think if there's um, any area where there would be a solid or a theoretical solid challenge, it would be the impaneling of the grand jury, right? We have a very, very small community, um, a small county. And so obviously when you have a case of this magnitude with not only national attention, but international attention, it would be very, very hard to seat uh, a jury locally that had no preconceived notions um, or frankly hadn't heard about the case at all. Hoberger did not enter a plea at his arraignment in May. You know, one of the things that they're talking about here, obviously, is the defense argued that the standard of proof um, for a grand jury should be under reasonable doubt. And that's that's not the case. The standard of proof is probable cause. Facts and circumstances that would lead a reasonable person to believe that a crime has been committed and the person arrested or brought forth before the grand jury committed the crime. Beyond a reasonable doubt is at a trial. That is a, a, a much higher standard that the prosecution must prove, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, so we understand these things. And, and case law is on the side of Judge Judge, who obviously says that uh, he has to go with the law. He cannot just go with the the argument that the defense is making. Uh, so he denied the argument. Uh, the judge judge up, upholds the standard of probable cause. The defense argued that the standard of proof should be higher than probable cause. Uh, judge said the argument was creative, but not based on the law.
And Judge Judge also ruled that, you know something? You can take it to a higher court. You can take it to the Idaho Supreme Court. Will they do that? Um, this case is already, it's coming up on a year. November 13th will be a year from when this occurred, this horrific crime occurred. And it's, it's so hard to believe almost that a year went by in this case of these uh, four precious kids lost their lives in this, uh, and there's their picture up on the screen a year ago. It's, it's just unbelievable. Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, Dana Knittel, and Madison Mogan. November 13th, uh, for us maybe in the audience, for us that aren't family members or don't live in Moscow, Idaho, I don't know. For me, it still seems like it was a long time ago. But many may seem, oh, it went fast. A year went by already. But the families must feel this was a year without their loved ones and just a horrible thing. So when we talk about probable cause, when we talk about uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, we talk about all these legalistic things. Sometimes we can lose sight that what this case is about are those four, four young kids. And I say kids because I have actually kids older than, than these kids, and I still call them my kids. Uh, my kids are 31 and 29. So, and they'll, all you parents out there know that no matter what age your kids are, they'll always be your kids. You know, they could be in their 60s and they'll, they'll still be, the, they'll still be your kids. Koberger's attorney Ann Taylor said he stood silent to preserve his right to challenge the indictment. But the information the defense is using to support their claims is sealed. A hearing on that motion is closed to the public this Thursday, an incredibly rare occurrence in a criminal case. So what could possibly happen at that hearing? I would imagine that there is going to be evidence presented, whether that is through documentary evidence, um, witnesses, and live testimony, right? But when you have the um, emotion of this nature, it's not something that the defense can just theorize about, right? And to make this argument and to ask the court to make a ruling to ultimately dismiss the indictment in this case, it can't be theoreticals and it can't be hypotheticals. I would imagine that the defense has to have some real concrete evidence to show this is what happened, judge, um, or these series of things are what happened. And this is why this indictment cannot stand. I mean, this in my mind is not a case that, or not this motion is not a situation where it can just be legal theory and argument. You're going to have to present to the judge some absolute concrete evidence, testimony, and otherwise to convince the judge there is something that occurred that warrants the dismissal that the defense is seeking in this case. Police have cited circumstantial evidence, such as touch DNA and cell phone records, in making the case that Koberger murdered students Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Xander Kernodal nearly one year ago. Koberger's second motion to dismiss the indictment claims prosecutors did not present enough evidence to grand jurors. They cite the Idaho Constitution that says, the grand jury ought to find an indictment when all the evidence before them, taken together, if unexplained or uncontradicted, would, in their judgment, warrant a conviction by a trial jury. That's different from the probable cause standard currently used. Idaho attorney Tara Malik on that argument. What the defense has been arguing here is that the same standard that's used at trial to convict someone, so beyond a reasonable doubt, should be used at the grand jury stage as well both in a preliminary hearing uh, route, had the state gone that way, or in the grand jury proceeding, the standard has been uh, under modern jurisprudence, uh, this 
probable cause more likely than not 51% standard that a crime was committed and this individual is the one that committed the crime. And so for the defense to come in and argue now that we should throw all of that out, all of these courts who've interpreted this statute as it comes to the standard of proof are wrong and we need to go back to or we need to go to this high beyond a reasonable doubt uh, burden is not a novel argument, but one that has been pretty soundly rejected by the courts. You know, it's so amazing that, and I think hopefully you guys are paying attention to this, standards of proof, you know, and we all know in our system of, uh, of, of jurisprudence that to convict someone in a court of law, the prosecution must prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's it's much higher burden, of course, to prove someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense doesn't have to prove someone innocent in our system. They just have to do what, folks? If you've been paying attention for all these years, they have to create doubt, right? We all know that. I'm not trying, I'm not talking to you like you're, you don't know, but I'm just saying, I feel like I'm talking to my criminal justice class. Their job is to create doubt. So, as this attorney just uh, just said, it's not a novel idea that the defense would raise this issue that in a grand jury should have to have a higher standard beyond a reasonable doubt. And this attorney saying, no, courts have said, they have spoken legal precedent that it's the standard for a grand jury is probable cause. And then once the grand jury if they do vote to indict, which they did in this case, then to prove this person guilty in front of a jury of its peer, of his peers, you must prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Is this the, a case of the defense literally doing everything they can uh, to challenge this case? Because I mean, maybe the legislature needs to go back or, or the voters of the state need to go back and amend this part of the Idaho Constitution. But it, it just seems to me this is not going to be an argument that flies, although I, I give them points for creativity. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think the defense is in a really tough spot with this case. What we know so far and, you know, admittedly, we haven't seen everything. We're not privy to the discovery that's gone back and forth between the state and the defense team here. But what we've seen and what we know so far presents a pretty compelling uh, picture and a pretty compelling um, theory of the case that the state has here against Brian Koberger. And so uh, I'm sure that the defense is looking at every route and really holding the state to its standard of proof, as well as making sure that the state has followed all the rules that it needs to fall. But uh, I would say this is more than, you know, a really big hill for them to climb. This is like Mount Everest they're trying to climb here with this legal argument. Brian Koberger remains in the Lataw County Jail where he's held without bail. Law and Crime will bring you the public portion of Thursday's motion hearing on our YouTube channel. So, folks, obviously you saw the uh, defense attorney, um, Tara Malik say that uh, for Koberger's defense to, to prove that and to get a decision that would sit that would reverse this could you imagine first of all just think judge john judge overturned this indictment i mean i can't even imagine any judge that would do that but just imagine what he did what kind of pushback and of course we, uh, the pushback is isn't why a judge would make a decision the judge is making the decision because he's relying on the law and his judgment that's why he's called a judge right he has good judgment, and we hope that this judge and, and, and most judges have um, good judgment uh, because that's why uh, that's why they're sitting up there in those black robes above the courtroom because they've been uh, elected or nominated as a judge. And, of course, we all know that you don't just get nominated to be a judge if you don't have a, a law degree. You need a law degree to do that. Some people are like, oh, I want to be a judge. Well, first you better get your law degree, you know. I don't think I have to tell you that one either, but um, they must know the law because when a, a sharp defense attorney, much like the people in this case, present these arguments, 
if the judge makes the wrong decision and this case proceeds to trial, an appeals court could throw out his decision, say it's incorrect for these reasons. Therefore, a judge sitting up there must be learned, must know the law, of course, what you think, I mean, take it for granted. But you can't always take anything for granted. Uh, the other issue was, of course, um, the cameras in the courtroom. And, of course, all media, all media is salivating at the fact that we have to be allowed to have cameras in the courtroom and pining at the fact that if this judge decides no cameras in the courtroom, that's going to kill this case for us. How are we going to report on it if we're not allowed in the courtroom? But there are issues involved with cameras in the courtroom. Are they prejudicial to the defendant? Do they intimidate the jury? Do they cause the behavior of witnesses, defendants, lawyers, court officers, court employees? Do they cause their behavior to change because they are under that watchful eye? They say a camera never blinks, right? So a camera never misses anything. So I want to play a little of Ashley Banfield last night. And I know that Ashley from day one was really pushing. We have to have cameras in the court. We have to have the cameras in the courtroom. And initially when I had heard about it, I, I, I'm a little bit against it, to tell you the truth, for those reasons that I just cited. Uh, that they do change the behavior of people uh, that are witnesses, jurors. H how terrified would you be to be on this jury? And I'm sure that the instructions will be that the jury is not allowed to be uh, recorded using any cameras that are in the courtroom because the jurors must remain anonymous for those reasons. How about... The defendant, is it okay to record the defendant, his facial expressions under certain uh, issues? Look, look at the um, Murdoch case in South Carolina. Cameras in the courtroom, he testified. You can judge for yourself how he came across on the witness stand, how he came across sitting at the defense table with, with his attorneys. Was that prejudicial? Did that help him? Did that hurt him? I mean, guys, I'm asking rhetorical questions, but, you know, you have to think of these things. Do cameras in the courtroom, do they help justice? Do they hurt justice? Does the public have a 100% right for the government to be transparent, therefore, to show the entire trial. You have to answer that for yourself. But we know what the the answer that Judge Judge made yesterday. We'll play this. This is uh, Ashley Banfield. Secret, and one of them wasn't in secret. Brian Enton is live on the ground in um, Moscow, Idaho. I got to say, the results of the not-so-private hearing was like literally music to my ears because, Brian, it was about cameras in the courtroom. Take it away. It was. It's a snowy night uh, here in, in Idaho, Ashley. We weren't expecting the judge to talk about cameras today. It was about the grand jury indictment. That's what was on the docket. But the judge just randomly brought it up. He said, look, I haven't made the written uh, motion yet when it comes to cameras, a, a decision, a final decision. But I want to let you know that the cameras will get to stay. But he says he's going to have more control over the cameras. Exactly what that means, we don't know. We sense it probably means that the court is going to have their own cameras and they'll put out the feed themselves rather than using a media pool camera. But uh, the good news, as you said, is that the cameras will get to stay. Fine by me. Pool cameras are fine. I don't care what kind of camera. Just give me some kind of, uh, you know, transparency to American jurisprudence. Next question. Uh, Ann Taylor, Koberger's lawyer, wanted the indictment thrown out. Uh, valiant effort. And the result of that is... It is not going to get thrown out, which is really not a major surprise, but it was interesting. They had this like three hour secret hearing, Ashley, inside the courthouse behind me this morning. Public was not allowed in. We were all outside. It went way over schedule. Then they let everybody in for the public hearing where they continued 
to talk about the grand jury uh, indictment. Uh, the defense arguing that uh, they didn't use the right language when they gave the jury instructions, also that there may have been a biased grand juror or several biased grand jurors, and there was evidence presented that shouldn't have been presented. In the end, the judge heard it all, said he didn't agree, that he was not going to throw out the indictment, said they could take it up with the Supreme Court uh, at a later date. All right. Well, lots happening where you are. And there it is, the snow again. It reminds us just how long it's been, almost a year since the murders. Um, Brian yeah. Enton, excellent work as always in Idaho. Thank you for that. So there was uh, obviously Ashley Banfield uh, was pining about not having uh, cameras in the courtroom as if, oh, that can't happen. That can't happen. We have the right. Uh, there's a balance, right? between the defendant's rights and a transparent uh, state government that's doing the prosecution. Um, so who was right uh, here? And the judge obviously ruled. Here we have a little picture on, on the screen. And the judge's thoughts were that um, he's going to allow cameras in the courtroom uh, but he's going to what he how he put it, take control of what is recorded. Therefore, the media is not going to have their cameras. I, I guess the the court will have specific shots, perhaps maybe uh, shots of the attorneys presenting their arguments, uh, the witness, uh, the judge. But I don't know if they're going to be allowed to show the entire courtroom. That's going to have to be decided. Again, when we cite the Murdoch case, I mean, you saw everything. You saw the his son reacting to some of the testimony. Um, Lieutenant Peter Pranzo in the chat mentioned, and for those of us who are old enough, and I'm old enough uh, to have watched a lot of the O.J. Simpson trial, there is no doubt that the uh, cameras in the courtroom affected um, the trial in the O.J. Simpson case. One of the things that I felt that it did was, you know, people, again, acted differently because they were being recorded. They behaved differently. Marsha Clark thought she was a, a Hollywood star every time she present, was presenting her arguments. Uh of course, O.J. had his his defense team, which was known as the Dream Team. You know, Robert Shapiro, Robert Shapiro F. Lee Bailey. Um, I can't remember the names of all his attorneys. It must have been a couple of million dollars of defense attorneys. Barry Sheck, who was uh, an attorney for a an activist organization. I guess you, I don't know if that's the proper word, but uh, known as the Innocence Project, that he still uh, works for that uh, Cardozo Law, Law School in Brooklyn, New York, and they uh, look at cases that they feel were um, someone was uh, unlawfully convicted, or perhaps someone that, that they feel is innocent. That's what they do. They retry these cases, they reinvestigate them, and they see if there's grounds to get an appeal and to retry the case. He was also on the O.J. Simpson defense team. And I can't even imagine how many private investigators they had, you know, private eyes that were going around trying to get information. And then, so my whole point, I don't mean to, to, to uh, speak about the O.J. case. I'm just saying how cameras in a very specific case, much like that, and uh, Lieutenant Pete pointed that out, it absolutely affected the and, and you know whose behavior I thought it affected the most in that case, Judge Lance Ito. He behaved, I thought. Um, he showed his emotions. I'll put it that way. There was a detective on the stand who said some disparaging remarks, or had said some disparaging remarks about Judge Ito's wife, who was an LAPD police captain. And you could see he, like, sighed, like, dude, you know, it's it's over with now. But he 
he shouldn't have reacted to that. You're a judge, you know, you're a big boy. And I think that if there weren't cameras on him, he perhaps wouldn't have reacted to that. Um, so, oh, so also getting back to the cameras in the courtroom here, I see uh, I got a little detoured there when I was, was speaking about it. Um, the language the judge uh, used was uh, he'd allow cameras in the courtroom, but uh, he'll take control of what is recorded. And he used these three words, patience, dignity, and restraint. Absolutely no live streaming. A private Zoom for the families of the victims. Uh, he thinks that the public should hear and, uh, and see the evidence. Um, so one of the things, of course, is that will they remove everyone's cell phone that goes into the court? All recording devices. They can't control that, right? So will they require people to sign their phone in and leave it, say, at the front. All of these are issues that we don't know yet what, what's, what's the decision, but when the judge says the court will take control uh, of, of the cameras, um, that's, uh, that's a powerful decision, I think. You know, uh, So, again, the court will take control of it, but Judge John Judge has ruled that cameras will be allowed. So that is in itself um, a big, a big decision, a big, uh, a big decision that came out of the court hearing yesterday. And um, so everyone was waiting for this, but here it is. Is uh, take control of the cameras in the courtroom. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to ban cameras in the courtroom. But uh, I need to have more control over what the cameras are doing and what uh, what media or people who are not media are doing with uh, the, the filming. I mean, folks, think about it. How about what people that are media are doing with the recordings? What people that are not media are doing with the, the whole world of social media now, right? The whole thing could be on social media. Is the world of social media going to decide guilt or innocence by the way things are presented? So this is a very powerful decision by this judge, a brave decision, I think. Uh, and the fact that he is going to control it, I think that's the smartest thing he could possibly do. I know I can only control so much. Uh, and that's why I continue to uh, urge people to be patient and uh, have some dignity and some restraint. And uh, some of that I've heard or seen has been uh, disappointing. Again, guys, patience, dignity, and restraint. How could you disagree with those three words this judge just said? Patience dignity and restraint that's what he wants and we're going allowing cameras in the courtroom patience dignity and restraint just so you know yesterday i issued uh, an order addressing igg uh, dna uh, and there's going to be an order for in-camera review that i'm going to go through uh, in-camera does not mean anything about a camera and that just means I look at the information before I can share it uh, with uh, the defense. Um, let me see what else did I want to kind of share with everybody. I think that's about it. So we're here now on the defense motion to dismiss indictment on grounds of error in grand jury instructions or in the alternative remand, remand for a preliminary hearing. So Mr. Uh, Logston, I believe, is going to present the argument. Thank you. Hey, Garth. 
Well, as your honor is aware, um, I wrote a lengthy brief or two uh, on the subject of where we're supposed to be legally with our grand juries and where we actually are. And as your honor let me know this morning, probably not going to change your mind because the Idaho Supreme Court has, I think the court thinks, got me a little bit. So I guess I would accept that kind of ruling as long as the court agrees with everything else I have to say. But assuming that you don't, let's, I guess, just kind of walk through the simple sets here. So the at issue of this particular case is Federal Code 19-1107. And the this is the argument uh, to dismiss the indictment of the grand jury by uh, Brian Koberger's attorneys. The infamous language in it that says that uh, grand jury ought to find indictments and all evidence before them taken together, unexplained or contradicted, would in their judgment warrant a conviction by a trial. And the first question that a court has to ask is, does that mean? And you start with the plain language, which we argue what warrants a finding or a conviction day a trial jury is beyond a reasonable doubt. And it meant that back in uh, 1887, when the territory took all of these statutes, uh, almost entirely from the state of California, and it means it today. Uh, and then we also pointed out that the great state of California, when they had these on their books from back in the 50s, had already a case in 1962 where they said that it's clearly something more than probable cause, but they weren't too specific about exactly what it And the state has pointed out that if you look at really old light uh, dictionaries, it looks like we're warrant means, which you might think it does, the old time folks, at least it does to us, that if it warrants doing something, it means that it would permit doing something. So the plain language seems to support what we're saying. And the biggest problem that I have then is just that obviously everyone in the country disagrees with me uh, from sea to shining sea. And so I am now put in a position of trying to explain why that occurred and why in the year of our Lord 2023, we are suddenly finding out that that's not quite how things are supposed to be. Why did we forget that we passed all these laws? And I don't have a great answer for that, other than I think the only time I ever heard about field codes before I was looking into this was like a really short moment in a class that I took back in law school. So, I mean, it, it's somewhat famously kind of the first attempt to codify the law of the day that takes place in New York and, and spreads across the country uh, back in, in 1850. And I think what I read in the tea leaves from the New York decisions uh, and the later California decisions is that there was pushback at some of the things that the field code was trying to do. And one of the things that the field code very openly said it was trying to do was fix the grand jury system. Because the grand jury system was believed to be essentially broken. For a lot of the same reasons we don't seem to like grand juries uh, very much today. It was essentially believed that Grand juries were hard to control. Uh, grand juries would essentially always favor whatever it is they were told. Would always in fact be accused, and so 
as a system to protect people, it didn't seem very protected. And they pointed out in uh, the bill code, if you go back and read it, that essentially the secrecy aspect of the grand jury is both its most powerful sword and its uh, kind of its worst aspect at the same time. Because you just don't know what you're going to get out of it. And so they create a bunch of statutes that start to rein in what grand juries can and can't do. And they create some scenarios under which grand juries can be reviewed. And they, in the New York, uh, they call it their court of appeals, it's their Supreme Court, says, um, you know, even though we have these statutes that say uh, we should only set aside these indictments for these particular moments, Clearly, there's got to be some sort of a due process protection. If you're going to pass a bunch of statutes that reign in a grand jury, and if you can show that somebody's not following those to the prejudice of the accused, then that's going to work for business as well. And that doesn't seem to be very controversial. Uh, we see similar language in that. Folks, I'm not going to make you listen to all of this. His argument is, in a rather worthy, uh, excuse me, wordy presentation, is that the system, the grand jury system, in essence, is unfair to his client because the standard for a grand jury, let's understand, a grand jury just decides if there's enough to proceed with the case. The arrest, based on probable cause, so the standard of proof they're using is probable cause. However, this attorney is saying that the grand jury uh, should also have beyond a reasonable doubt, which we know is the standard uh, after afterwards. Uh, so it, it's I think it's a little tough to understand. It's wordy. But guess what? The judge um, disagreed and ruled, no, that's not um, you know, I'm not throwing out the indictment. It's a good indictment. The case will proceed. And he said, if you'd like, you can take this to the uh, Idaho Supreme Court. So could that happen down the road? After all, this is a death penalty case, right? Yes, this could happen down the road. <laughs> Let's see. This is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to this channel, we have a Patreon with three different levels, and we also have a YouTube channel membership with five different levels. And you see the folks in the uh, green font. They're part of our family, our subscribers, our friends, and we really appreciate everything they do for us. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Joe Murray is a retired NYPD member of the service, retired police officer, and a fantastic defense attorney. If you need an attorney in a New York metropolitan area, then Joe is your man. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855 or email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe a fantastic defense attorney, but he's a huge, huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, and we appreciate everything Joe has done for this podcast. He's helped us tremendously, and uh, in fact, he used to be a frequent flyer as a guest, but because he's so busy now, largely because this commercial's so <laughs> not not just kidding, but he's so busy now, he doesn't have the time to come on uh, YouTube anymore, which is sad because he was a, a great guest, a controversial guest, played, uh, you know, he always took the other side of the fence. He played devil's advocate a lot of times. Play This is a little bit of Vinnie Politan and uh, the court TV. It's this accused killer who wants the indictment tossed. 
Well, the prosecutors have so much evidence that they chose to seek the death penalty here and charged him with the top count, which, as you know, Vinny, if he is convicted and sentenced to death, that could possibly even mean death by a firing squad if the lethal injection drug is unavailable. So a perfect time to refresh our viewers on what that evidence is from the prosecution side ahead of this hearing tomorrow. Let's take a look at it. First, we know, of course, the biggest piece of evidence is the DNA that was found on the button of the ninth sheath found under Maddie Mogan's body at the crime scene that was first led to Koberger's father and then after his arrest, a direct match to his DNA. Also, an eyewitness there at that crime scene, one of the surviving roommates identified a tall male with athletic build, build and bushy eyebrows leaving that crime scene. Well, we know Koberger is six feet tall, 185 pounds, has those bushy eyebrows, as uh, we've been showing our viewers. Also, most importantly, the video of his vehicle, the white Hyundai Elantra, traveling around the crime scene at the time of the murders. Vinny, that 2013 white Hyundai Elantra we've seen on video and his cell phone data that aligns with that suspected route. We showed you night after night retracing those steps from that affidavit. And as of today, though, because he did waive his right to a speedy trial, the October trial date, of course, was vacated. We don't have a trial date yet uh, for his death penalty case. But we do have uh, two hearings tomorrow. Can you give us some of the details of those two hearings? Well, he, they're talking about hearings that have already taken place. So just keep that in mind. Absolutely. Well, there's the first hearing. It's a closed hearing, so we won't be able to be in there and be privy to the details because it involves the workings of a secret grand jury proceeding. So that closed hearing is 930 local time, 1230 Eastern, and it's taking up a motion from the defense to dismiss the indictment to... Well, based on several grounds, including biased grand jury, inadmissible evidence, lack of sufficient evidence, and prosecutorial misconduct in withholding exculpatory evidence. I wish we could hear more about it, but those substantive filings were filed under seal, uh, so we won't know that. But we will be inside. Our camera will be inside the courthouse or courtroom later that afternoon for a second hearing. That will deal with kind of the same issue dismissing that indictment, this time on the grounds of error in the grand jury instructions. And so they want it either dismissed or in the alternate for the judge to remand to a preliminary hearing, Vinny. So that's what we will be watching tomorrow afternoon. So the, the second hearing is the one that'll be open to the public. And that one is really based on some legal issues rather than getting into factual issues. Right. It's actually a pretty interesting and complicated legal argument in the 23-page defense motion that was filed back in July. Here's part of what they contend that, you know, why this judge should dismiss the indictment. It says the motion, this motion is made on the grounds that the grand jury was misled as to the standard of proof required for an indictment. It cites statutory interpretation supporting a, get this, beyond a reasonable doubt standard for a grand jury to issue an indictment. They point to legislative history to support beyond a reasonable doubt and that the failure to instruct that grand jury to that many, they believe is grounds to dismiss this indictment or again, remand for a preliminary hearing. Now, the prosecution, as you can imagine, fired back in its response motion saying that beyond the, a reasonable doubt standard is nonsense and unorthodox and in conflict with precedent here in the state. Here's part of what their motion says. It says that the whole of modern jurisprudence on this issue is against that standard uh, in the defense's jarring arguments and the court would be duty bound to apply the controlling precedent and of course reject this argument. It should be of course in the prosecution's estimation, a probable cause standard, as would be the standard of a preliminary hearing, and not beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's what we will be listening to when that hearing is underway tomorrow afternoon. Yeah, if Vegas was taking money on that one, I, I would I would put a lot down on the prosecution <laughs> to win that one. Uh, but we'll see. You never know. Um, we'll see. It's up to Judge Judge. Okay, so you're, you're out there, back out in Moscow. You've been out there so many times. Uh, what's the mood now as, as things are starting to move now in this criminal case? 
Well, Minnie, we're only a couple of weeks away from the one-year anniversary of the massacre that happened in this community. There are still signs of memorials here and there, but it is much a community that looks to be moving on. But I did catch up with residents and students who are back to school this semester, and this case is still very much on their minds. Let's take a listen. Yeah, most people try to like not bring it up because it's a sad subject to bring up upon, but everybody knows what happened and everybody mourns and everybody's upset about what happened. We never go to the bathroom alone, never like leave anywhere alone. A lot of the times we have like boys in the dorms that'll come pick us up from wherever we are and like walk us home. Well, once they've pretty much found the person that could be the suspect, everybody kind of calmed down and went back to their old ways and with a little more vigilance or caution. No, I, I hope he gets put in jail, like prison for a while, yeah. And most, I mean, most people here do, like nobody likes him. And... It impacted like a lot of people on campus. I told my mom like a thousand times, like if I went here last year, I probably wouldn't have come back because that like, the thought of that scares me that didn't know that his mind wasn't right and that he needed the mental health help to not have an incident like this half tragic incident. It shocks you and you change your habits and you go from not locking your doors to locking them at night and figuring out where the keys to your house are so you can lock them during the day and get back in and make sure that there's nobody hiding in your house. <laughs> sure. And then I learned well, you know, this has been uh, today's October 27th. November 13th is the one-year anniversary to this case. Uh, just incredible uh, when we think of these uh, these four kids that lost their life and just the senselessness of it. Uh, it's, um, it's hard to believe. It's really hard to believe. But Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zaina Canodal and uh, Madison Mogan. And uh, we always want to remember them and remember that no matter what we're talking about, this case is about them. Uh, so to recap, the judge ruled that the indictment goes forward. It's not going to be thrown out. The grand jury indictment is, is good on its merits. The case will proceed. And cameras in the courtroom Judge Judge ruled, yes, he will allow cameras in the courtroom. So those two, two decisions uh, went in. Well, I don't know if the prosecution wanted cameras in the courtroom either. They seem to be semi against it also. But as far as the indictment, of course, that went in the favor of the prosecution. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Have a great night and be safe. One episode, just ain't enough.